everybody, and welcome to episode 11 of We Effed Up. I am Teresa. I'm Cody. And we are here to tell you about all of the times in history when uh, we effed up. And normally I say the royal we, and I think in this particular instance, I'm going to be more right than normal. Yeah, yeah, you are. Dang. What are we talking about today, Cody? We're going to talk about Lord Mountbatten and the partition of India. Okay, so for our listeners and for me... Mountbatten is actually the the recently deceased Prince Philip's last name, right? Mm-hmm. And the Queen is actually Mountbatten Windsor. Windsor. Yeah, but it was Mountbatten Windsor at one Her? point. Her? No. Okay, well, anyways. The, the, like, their children are Mountbatten Windsor. Oh, okay, that's what I'm thinking but... of then. So it's Charles, Prince Charles, Mountbatten yeah. Windsor. Okay. Yeah. So, but that wasn't always his last name. Wasn't that something where he, no, what, there, wasn't there some, like, issue with their last name where, like, they didn't want to be associated yeah. with the whole Nazi thing? Um, it, or is it, it just because Prince Philip is Danish and his last names were along? Yeah, well, if any, he's, yeah, it, it, it gets into this weird, stupid complication. Basically, typically when a... We have a female monarch, they marry, and they have children. The children take the father's last name, and so you have a different, quote-unquote, royal house. Mm-hmm. So, like, House of Hanover, House of, like, Lancaster, House of York, like all these four British royal houses. By typical convention, Charles, from now, and all the people from now on, until the next female monarch, would be the House of Mountbatten. In the 50s, after Elizabeth became queen... She wanted to just continue the House of Windsor, mm-hmm. and she can just say who, like, the, this is our last name. She can just issue a decree saying that. Dang. So, basically, Imagine she that. just she just decided, no, our kids' last names are going to be Mountbatten-Windsor. Oh. And all of her children afterwards were like, why do we have to write 20 letters for our last name? Well, they don't. Well, the ones who eventually aren't princes or princesses would have to, but, you know, oh. like, Charles wouldn't have to. When she becomes, becomes king, he just would just write Charles R. Like well, Elizabeth writes Elizabeth R. What does R mean? Rex. Oh. Yeah. Dang. So. Imagine imagine being so notorious that you don't even have to sign your whole name. You just have to sign R for Rex. Yeah. Which yeah. is Latin. Dope. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, all right, that's so completely, it, completely he, off topic. No, we're he, not even like five minutes in. <laughs> is, uh, is this person related to Prince Philip? Yeah, that's his uncle. Okay. So. All right. On his mom's side or dad's side? The Nazi his, side? His dad's side. So not the Nazi side? No, that was his sister, really, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was. His, I think his sisters were married to some Nazis. I, I don't remember offhand. I only know this from watching The Crown, but yeah. that one episode where his sister dies in the car, or in the plane accident. All right, for Upper does show up on The Crown, so. What? Yeah. Who? Or R, F, or Upper. Okay. Yeah. I thought you said something else. I was like... Prince R. Fropper. <laughs> I was like, who's R. Fropper? <laughs> okay. Sorry. No. All right. Um, but anyway, back to the topic at hand <laughs> that we haven't got to yet. Yes. Um, so, India, of course, is a country. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's the episode. Uh, no. Um, that's where uh, Christopher Columbus was searching. He was hunting for. Yes. He didn't and make he it. he was way off the mark. Yeah. Uh, so... Britain had been involved in India since the 17th century under okay. the auspices of the British East India Company. Right. Tea and spices, yeah? Yes. Okay. Um, increasing competition between European powers in India led to conflict and uh, domination, uh, or gradual domination of the uh, countries that are that were in India, the, these kingdoms. So prior to uh, European involvement, was India... A united country at that point? Uh, no, uh, no, like the area that's modern day India. No, okay. um, there have been several empires like come and go over the centuries. You know, okay. like the like the Mughal Empire, uh-huh. uh, going way, way, way back. You have the Indus uh, Indus River, I didn't Indus know, Valley Civilization. I didn't know if this was a so. situation like the Congo, where the the Europeans came in and were like, "You're a big one big country now," and they were like, "But we we've, we've lived separately for." Hundreds of years. It's kind of like that. Oh, boy. Yeah. All right. Um, so, 
East India Company power in India became entrenched after the Battle of Plassey in 1757. It's where this company really just gains dominance in India as a whole. Not, um, so not even a country. No. A, a no, corporation. Like, the, the British East India Company, it's like state-backed. Uh-huh. But it's not a part of the government. It, it's kind of weird. Like Blackwater? I'm just kidding. No, but like, it, it's kind of odd. It, Blackwater's like a private company, so like not not really even that. It's like... It's like a state-owned corporation, but, like, okay. the government doesn't directly run it. Okay. So... We don't really it, have any examples of that Yeah, it's... Here. it's Yeah, the, the relationship is kind of odd. Um, I can't think of a modern example, really. I'm sure there are some. Um, well, less so in this country, because the government owning any business is heresy, apparently. Yeah. Um, but, like, in other countries, like, state-owned banks. Oh, okay. That kind of thing. Yeah, okay. Um, something like that. I mean, it's not a bank, obviously. What about but... the post office? Yeah, I mean, the post office is probably a little more independent, but yeah. it's government-funded. Right. A lot, a lot of, at least a lot of it is, but... Um, and the post office isn't, you know, conquering entire subcontinents. Not yet. Not yet. There's always hope. You um, could go postal. Yeah. Um... <laughs> So, company rule was exercised in one of two ways. So, there was direct annexation of a territory and rule by the company. Like, the company is the one in charge. They're running the show. Okay. There's other areas of India that are called princely states. Okay. It's where they kind of just leave the existing government structure in place uh, with their ruler, but the company kind of handles all their foreign affairs or external business. They have special trade relationships with them. Okay. Um, and here I will show you a picture. The On this map, the pink area... Forget forget Burma. That, that gets cut off it later. But these pink areas are the areas that are directly ruled by the, by the company. Mm-hmm. And later on, the British government. These yellow areas are the princely states. Boy, so they're, it's basically surrounded by the directly owned companies. The princely states are yeah, essentially surrounded. It's, it's like a patchwork. Yeah. It really just depends on, like, are these rulers cooperating with us? Wow. It seems very, uh, very complicated. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. Um, this whole thing is complicated, but... Ooh, I love that. Love complicated stuff. Oh, yeah. It's always fun. Uh, the Indian Rebellion of 1857, also sometimes called the Sepoy Rebellion, okay. uh, led to the dissolution of the East India Company and direct rule of India by the British government, oh. uh, or what would be called the British Raj. Okay. Uh, um. and, and at the time, uh, it's not just the modern-day country of India. Uh, it includes India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Sri Lanka, which is like that little island off the East Coast mm-hmm. of India, and Burma, or what is it called, Myanmar. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sri Lanka and uh, Myanmar would get separated out uh, later on. They're not really relevant to the story, but mm-hmm. just saying, it's it's not just modern-day India. It's India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. Okay. So, what happened What happened that caused the end of the uh, British East India Company and decide, like for them to decide, this is just ours now? Uh, well, that rebellion, uh-huh. um, it, it kind of showed the weakness of company rule. Okay. Um, so this, the the uh, British government was like, all right, well, we'll just run things now. They they dissolved the company and just took it took over administration. Man, imagine an entire company or corporation just owning the entire country, and then when something happens, the workers rebel, the people rebel, yeah. whomever it is, the company is like, mm, no, you're not going to do that. We're just going to take you over now. Yeah, because it's weird just having a company just rule uh, and it, right. it's, yeah so it's not something that really has a modern equivalent right economically um, i mean were they were they essentially reliant on the business that was produced by the british east india company like the british government or no no the people of india and bangladesh and oh, they're the ones being exploited no that's what i'm saying like so the entire the entire country like basically was employed by this particular entity no not necessarily um they just essentially were the government in a lot of areas and the others where they weren't they had special trade relationships i see everybody's like extracting money from the country so so. it's just easy to yeah make them fold they're like well do you want money yeah and then but eventually in the end the government the british government dissolves the company and takes over directly okay so 
After the formation of the British Raj, an opposition movement begins to coalesce, leading to the formation of the Indian National Congress in 1885. Okay. I'm just going to call them Congress from now on. Okay. I understand. Just to make it sound as I have to say the whole thing. Sure. Um, There is an area called Bengal, Uh which is basically modern-day Bangladesh and a little bit of India. Um, Let's see if I can show it on the map here. This area here is Bengal, like over here in the east. Okay. And after a botched uh, attempt to divide it into east and west, a Muslim portion and a Hindu portion. Oh, boy. uh, The All India Muslim League was formed in 1906. I'm just going to call them the League from now on. Okay. So you have Congress and League. Basically opposing one another. Congress and the League. Not necessarily opposing one another, but wanting different things for India. And I'll get into that in a little bit. But something else you may want to take note of. So, like, these green areas on this map here are the Muslim-majority areas. And these uh, red or orange areas are the Hindu-majority areas. So, like, this is Bengal. Uh-huh. So, they're trying to divide that up into Hindu and Muslim parts. Well, it's the Muslim part in the middle, smack dab in the middle yeah. of basically all Hindu parts. Yeah, well, that, that creates a complication yeah. later okay. on. Okay, I can um, see where this is going. Yeah. Drawing um, arbitrary lines along racial or religious segments oh, always goes well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like I said, that, the League forms in 1906. Mm-hmm. Uh, next decade, you have World, uh, World War One. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, World War One, it like the British, it wasn't only the United Kingdom fighting for, like, under the British flag. Sure. Or the British side. You also had the uh, Australians, New Zealanders, Canadians, South Africans, um... You also have Indians also serving in the British Army uh, during World War One. So you have, like, Indian soldiers in the trenches and stuff. Okay. Um, and they, uh, World War One saw extensive use of Indians under British command. Over 1.7 million Indians served in the war. Wow. With over 74,000 being killed during the course of the conflict. Wow. I mean, I didn't even know that there were Indian people involved because they probably just get lumped under, like, the British umbrella yeah. at the time. So, I had no idea. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the fact that Indians are fighting and dying in this European war. Right. That they have nothing to do with. It yeah, doesn't get, even... It's not kinda, even close to them. Yeah, you can kind of see where that goes. Yeah. Um, it's at this point I'm going to introduce a character to our story uh, who is probably one of the most well-known people in the world, Mohandas Gandhi. Okay. Uh, do I really need to show you a picture? You do not need okay. to show me the picture. <laughs> All right. Um, ben Kingsley. Yeah. No, I'm um, just kidding. Go ahead. He had been born in October 1869 in Gujarat, India. Uh, he was educated as a lawyer in the UK. Okay. So he went to Britain to actually you know, train to uh, become a lawyer. Pause real quick. There was a, a quite a bit of an exchange in terms of culture and people at this point between Great Britain and India. Am I right? Yeah. More so like Indians... Going to Britain to be educated and then returning home, as opposed to um, British people going to India and bringing back Indian culture. Okay, you would do that. You'd have like some Indian immigration to Britain. Uh, you have some like going there to get educated and then coming back. So it's more like taking British ideas back to India mm-hmm. than taking Indian ideas back to Britain. So was that something that was kind of only relegated to wealthy people? To, like to be Indian and to go to Britain and, and be educated and then come home? You would have had to have some degree of connection with somebody okay. to do it. Like, you, like you're, for life of a term, your poor street urchin in, in uh, Mumbai probably mm-hmm. would not have that opportunity. Sure. So, um... Anyway, he was educated as a lawyer in the UK. Uh, he actually moved to South Africa in 1893. He lived along... There was a large Indian community in South Africa. Because okay. it was also a British colony sure, at the yeah. time. And it's, you know... not as It's not as far away as Britain, um, certainly. Yeah. Um, so he moved there in 1893, uh, working as a lawyer. And he, deve- he developed his ideas of non-violence and non-cooperation while in South Africa. Like, the stuff he's known for. Okay. Uh, he would return to India in 1915 with his family. He's married, has several kids by this point. Um, he advocated for a united, religiously plural India. So, like, all of the Raj as one independent state. Yes, there's all this different mix of religions, 
You have Hinduism, you have Muslim or Islam predominantly, but you also have Sikhism, mm-hmm. you also have Buddhism, you have all these different religions, all these different cultures, but we're, they're all working together to make one united, prosperous country. Okay. Which is a noble, it, it's a noble ideal. Yeah. It, unfortunately, it doesn't always work, but it is what it is. Uh, like I said, he returns to, to India in 1915 and began his non-cooperation or Satyagraha movement in 1917. Uh, like during World War One, okay. Because, like I said, he's kind of latching on to this displeasure with all these Indians going overseas, sure. dying and fighting for an empire. That's sure. Really and I would imagine that that was probably a huge topic yeah. and cause of the yes. day was why are our sons going to fight for something that we don't have any stake yeah. in? We didn't do this. And after the war, there was actually an increase because uh, the British kind of saw, like you know, they wanted to nip this in the bud. Uh, they introduce anti-sedition and protest laws, which led to greater resentment. Of course. Trying to crack down on this protest. Yeah, because the the very best thing you can do about protesting is to make laws against it. Yes. Um, the Jallianwala Bagh Massacre, or the what's commonly called the Amritsar Massacre, in April 1919, left between 350 and 1,000 dead. Wow. Yeah. India, when it comes to population, think it terms of scales that we don't really know here in this country mm-hmm. um so so what was the massacre in regards to just, they just killed protesters it just thing is just escalated violence escalated and Jeez. you end up with a was it the several po- hundred people dead police force the military military oh boy so. okay um at gandhi's movement began or his movement gained steam and he became a leader in the indian independence movement he came involved with congress um, I think even the America even led it for a little bit, but mm-hmm. um, mostly focusing on like you know more act- activism closely with the people as opposed to like political organizing. Like he's more widely seen as like the moral leader, okay, of the independence movement as opposed to like the political leader. I see. Um, so uh, Britain passes the Government of India Act in 1935, which created a, gr- a degree of self-government. Uh, okay. They can elect their own leaders. They have their own uh, legislature. Still subservient to Britain. But. Great. Yeah. You you guys can play politics, but we're still yeah. going to be on top of that. And if you do something we don't like, we're going to tell you no. Mm-hmm. On the outbreak of World War II, the Viceroy of India, who's like the just the, the British guy in charge of India. Sure. The Marquess of Linlithgow. So another aristocrat, another made-up title. I think Marquess is below Duke, but above Earl. I'm going to rename this this podcast. We have to colon all of the names that Cody made up. We made up the names. Womp womp. That's a hell of a title. Not all of that, just the we made up the names part. That, that That's better. That's a better one. I was workshopping the first one. It didn't work out. The second one, that's a strike. Nope, that's not. <laughs> yeah, that is a strike. So, <laughs> a home run. Yeah, and you're about to be out. No, it's a home run. Um, look, what do you want from me? I don't know baseball. I, wa- I want you to make uh, accurate sports uh, analogies. Well, good luck with that, because we're not here for sports. We're here for history. And we I were don't last know, week. And I don't know last about time. anything about either. <laughs> Some sports stuff on this podcast has heard in our previous episode. That's true. So that doesn't mean I know the difference between a strike and a home run. I do know them. I just said the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so Congress opposes involvement in the war while League supports it. Sure. Okay. So, well, uh, I wonder why. Why would the League? Because the League is for the they're representing the Muslim. Mus- yeah. The Mus- Why would they be in favor of this war? Uh, well, because or in favor of them participating because they in could it. see that, like, hey, if we support Britain in this, they may help us out later on. Oh, okay. So um, back scratching thing. Yeah. During okay. the war, League uh, grows rapidly and begins calling for a separate Muslim state, which Congress opposes. Okay, yeah, because they, their whole platform is they want a united India. Yeah. They wanted a, a yes. united, religiously plural, not separate, not segregated mm-hmm. India. Yep. Okay. 
So that makes sense. So, yeah, so like I said earlier, it's like they're not directly opposed to each other, but they don't want the same things. So we definitely did not learn our lesson from this situation when it comes to other places that were divided up by religion. (laughs) Oh, God, no. Okay. No. Great. All right. I see where this is going. Yeah. Um, So Congress pushes the Quit India movement, which wanted immediate independence. Just give us independence now. Stop messing with our stuff. Especially because it's like, okay, Britain, you're focused on fighting World War II. You have to fight it in the Pacific Theater. You have to fight it in Europe. Let us handle our own stuff. Sure. So, it's really... Britain, it's really less on your plate. Right. And Um, less money that they're having to worry about. Yeah, uh, the Raj immediately arrested Congress leaders. Oh, great. Um, We don't want that happening. A former member of Congress, the radical anti-British activist uh, Supas Chandra Bose... Uh, went, like, as far as he could go, he solicited German and Japanese support, uh, and led some Indian forces against British Army, so he's just like, look, we just want independence. We don't care who backs us in it. Axis powers, if you want us, if you back our independence, I'm fine with that. Wow, so they're, like, making deals with the devil at this point. Yeah. They don't care. All they want is to be, at any cost, they want to be free. Yeah. Um, Bose's movement failed as the war turned against the Axis powers, uh, but it inflamed tensions and patriotism. Because a lot of people, in it, a lot of the Indians, uh, agreed with him, mm-hmm. but or agreed with his motives. Sure. But not necessarily, you know, all of his actions. But, like, you know, they had some degree of um, uh, uh, common interest with him. Sure. So, um, during World War II, over 2.5 million Indians served, with over 87,000 being killed. Wow. So, same same thing, different war, basically. Yeah. Uh, after the war, a combination of Indian unrest and the economic exhaustion of the UK uh, led to independence being approved. Because, <laughs> like, after the war, the UK is, like, economically shattered. Yeah. Like, they, they're reliant on us for loans. Right, exactly. Um, so they can't afford this massive empire anymore. Right. I mean, what is the cost of upkeep in order to stay in control of something halfway across the world? Yeah. So It'd it's be just insane. becoming more and more, or less and less lucrative, less so, and less cost effective. So they didn't care about the growing unrest and the movement to give India their independence. They were really like, well, we can't afford to keep them, so cut them off. Well, the more unrest means you need more troops there, which sure. costs more money. Well, also, like, when they left, when, when Britain withdrew from India... Did it leave, like, a huge gaping hole? We're going to get to that. Okay. All right. That's where we're going. We're getting there. All right. Um, Labor Prime Minister Clement Attlee, who's the guy who succeeded Churchill, Mm -hmm. uh, sent several members of the cabinet to India in March 1946 to discuss what independence would actually look like with Indian leaders and formulate a plan. Well, that's kind of a good thing, right? Um, They weren't just like, bye. Yeah. Leaders of Congress and League could not agree on a plan, oh. as previously. Congress wanted a united India, while League wanted a separate Muslim state. Sure. And I'm going to take a break here to kind of introduce you to, like, the two main players uh, for Congress and League. Um, okay. So, for League, uh, the, the All-India Muslim League, uh, its leader at this time was a man by the name of Muhammad Ali Jinnah. Okay. Um, he had been born on Christmas Day, 1876, in Karachi, in modern-day Pakistan. Mm-hmm. He was, like Gandhi, educated as a lawyer in the UK. Okay. Uh, he returned to India and worked in Mumbai. Okay. Um, he joined Congress initially in 1904, because remember, Congress was like kind of like this all-encompassing um, independence party. Right. So like, you still have a lot of like these League members starting out as members of the Congress party. So he joined Congress in 1904, but was dissatisfied with the party's direction and joined League in 1916. Okay. Um, but he left politics in the 1920s because he didn't think it was moving far enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he just kind of just went back to his law practice, private, uh, private practice. But, but he returned to League in the late 1930s, advocating for a separate Muslim homeland in India. Or okay. within Raj. Uh, the Raj. Okay. Uh, support for the British during World War II led them to see Jinnah and League as representative of all of India's Muslims. Okay. Yeah. Great. Uh, and League won every... Uh, Muslim seat in elections to India's parliament in 1945, cementing Jinnah's leadership role. Wow. So, like, this uh, legislature that India has, mm-hmm. or that the Raj has, there's certain seats allocated to Muslims, certain seats allocated to Hindus. That seems rough. Yeah. 
Like, is it a good thing to divide up seats by religious affiliation? Well, a lot of these seats are also like, you know, Muslim majority areas, Hindu majority areas. Okay. They're probably going to elect. Yeah. So, so at this point in time, they are not able to see any sort of uh, shared purpose between the Muslim and the Hindu populations in India. At this point in time, they can't find a common purpose to unite under. It's becoming harder and harder to. Okay. Um, so, and so, like, the leader of Congress at this time was a man by the name of Jawaharlal Nehru. Okay. Um, he had been born in 1889 in Prayagaraj, India. Uh-huh. Do you want to guess what the next thing I'm going to say is? He went to Britain. He to was educated as a lawyer in yeah, the UK. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, he returned to India in 1912 and began involvement in the independence movement, joining Congress. Uh, he supported Gandhi's Satyagraha movement. Um, and where I'd mentioned Gandhi was regarded as like the moral leader of the movement, he's regarded as the political leader. He's the political leader. Yeah. Okay. Um, and he actually led the, like in those elections that I mentioned, um, he led the interim government as India's prime minister from September uh, 1946 onwards until, you know, the uh, until we get to like where we're talking about. Okay. So, so those are your major players in India at this time. Okay. Uh, the UK announces that India would be granted independence no later than June 1948. Okay, so still several so, years. Yeah, you have like a couple years to go. Of posturing, yeah. Yes. Okay. And Attlee appoints... Uh, Louis Mountbatten as Viceroy of India charged with overseeing independence. And this is where we get to our effer-upper for the episode. So Lewis... he's basically the outro. He's like the guy that's supposed yeah. to see them out. Yes. Okay. Louis Mountbatten. Um, born in June 1900 at Frogmore House in Windsor, England, which is a royal royal residence. Yeah. Uh, he is, as I mentioned earlier, an uncle to Prince Philip. Which also makes him a second cousin of Elizabeth II. I knew you were going to say that. I was like, how is he born at, in, in a castle in England? Ugh. Well, his... I think his dad was a grandson of Queen Victoria or something. Dude. So, so yeah. So, Philip II, or uh, Prince Philip, the late Prince Philip and Elizabeth II were cousins. Yeah. Yeah. Man, monarchy yeah. is gross. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, in terms of... Yeah. Really, in general, but in terms of, like, marrying cousins and stuff. Ew, man. Come yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, of all the dudes. Of all the dudes. Yeah, they're getting better about it. <laughs> they're marrying yeah. commoners now. Well, yeah, they're marrying commoners and then having blood feuds and having to flee and <laughs> get protection orders and all kinds of stuff. And marry Americans and... Dang. Yeah. <laughs> Moved to Canada. Yeah. I think they live in California now. Oh, I thought they lived in Canada. No. No, they. I don't think they do. But then there was a whole argument, like, Harry wanted royal protection still. Like, he wanted to have royal yeah. bodyguards still. And the queen was like, no, we're not going to support that because it's a, an expense that we don't want anymore. And then he's like, but we're getting death threats because my wife is mixed race. And, yeah. So. Who knew? We can't have that. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> uh, if yeah. you guys haven't watched the um, the Bill Hader and uh, Fred Armisen imitation <laughs> of the Queen and Prince Philip oh, on SNL, you should definitely check that oh, out on man. YouTube. Ugh. Add a couple more views to the 5 billion views already on there. It's pretty great. Yeah, that is pretty memorable. Uh, All right. Anyway, yeah. sorry. We digress. Yeah, she's worried about that, but yeah, she has a rapist for a son. <laughs> It's like, alleged, alleged rapist. That's right. Yes, alleged. I don't want. Please don't sue me for libel. Not convicted. Yes. Currently Just stripped of all his titles. <laughs> um. So yeah, um, it's actually something a little interesting. Like, um, the original name of the Mountbatten family was Battenberg. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But during World War One, the royal family like they have all these German titles and stuff. Right. Like and- it was originally the House of. Saxa, Coburg, and Gotha. Right, right. But it was changed to House of Windsor. Right. Battenberg was changed to the English version, so it would be Mount Batten. Right. Because Berg is... Right, yeah, sure. It's so. mountain. Yeah. yeah, so... 
That's where Mountbatten comes from. I thought, I I don't know if I read this or maybe they said it on The Crown, but something about how they wanted to, they did that so that it kind of distances them from the German aspect of it post-World War One and Two. They're um, very vain. The yeah. family's very vain. Yeah. Um, so His Mountbatten cousin. was commissioned into the Royal Navy in 1913, which, okay. at age 13... Uh, and, pointless titles are pointless. And served during World War One as a teenager. Doing what? St- sitting at the top of the ship, like, go do this. Yeah. I'm um, playing with tin soldiers. About a, where he continues his naval career. Um, he was nicknamed the Master of Disaster by several admirals for getting into trouble. Oh, boy. Yeah, of course. He's... Royalty, so he's going to get away with it. And, yeah, they're just going to be like, wow, what yeah. a chip off the old block. Yep. Uh, promote, he was promoted to Vice Admiral and joined the Naval Command Staff in 1942, during World War II. Um, he was, uh, in 1943, he was promoted to full Admiral and appointed a Supreme Commander of British Forces in Southeast Asia. Boy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he actually received... Uh, the surrender of local Japanese forces in Singapore in September 1945. Um, and he was created Earl Mountbatten of Burma in 1947 and appointed Viceroy. Jeez, so now he's okay. an Earl. All right, yeah. made another made-up title. Yep. Doesn't mean anything. Yep. Oh, and let me show you a picture of... Does he look just like Prince Philip? Got lots of... Dang! Oh my gosh, he does. Yeah. It's like the spitting image of Prince Philip. Oh, yeah. And you can see Charles in him, too. Like, Yeah. Uh, and the royal family, they uh, they nicknamed him Dickie. They called him Dickie. Oh, okay. Yeah, Dickie's in The Crown. All I, right. I told you he was. I t- Listen, everybody, just so you know, The Crown is 100% historically accurate, and I get all of my history from there. <laughs> <laughs> Look, how else am I supposed to know about the Queen if I don't watch The Crown with Olivia Coleman's amazing rendition of Queen Elizabeth and uh, Gillian Anderson's rendition of Margaret Thatcher. Sexy Thatcher. No. <laughs> no, I don't like that. Gillian <laughs> Anderson, if it. you're listening, never mind. <laughs> don't forget, she's also getting ready to play Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm. <laughs> Don't talk to me about that. I'm going to go rewatch X-Files. Bye. Yep. <laughs> Be back later. Yep. Um, it's weird, though. He looks just like... Yeah. Honestly, I think he looks more like Charles and Philip, but he looks just like Prince Charles. To give you a sense, listeners, of the type of guy that Mountbatten is, I think it was like season three or four of The Crown, they cast the guy who played Tywin Lannister on Game of Thrones as Mountbatten, yeah. just to give you a sense of the kind of guy he is. He's not good. <laughs> yeah. He's um, the master so, of disaster. <laughs> yeah. So, like I said, Attlee appointed Mountbatten as Viceroy of India on February 21st, 1947. Okay. And Mountbatten was tasked with overseeing Indian independence with a deadline of June 1948. Uh, he was given the instruction to try to avoid partition and maintain a single unified India. Uh, Britain also kind of wanted that because it's easier to deal with. Sure, yeah. Um, it's, it have to deal with one country instead of two. Right. Um, so... Uh, upon his arrival in India, uh, he witnessed large riots in various cities and increasing violence between opposing factions. Wow. Because uh, people know this is coming, and there's just an increasing amount of violence. Right. He sees all this, and this is where he F's up. Uh, he decides, against the advice of his advisors, which I should have thought that so. sentence out a little better, but <laughs> he decides to move the independence date forward to August 1947, a full ten months early. Okay. Yeah. Because he... He's like, this will make the people happy, and then we won't have these riots anymore. Yes, and also, uh, at the time, he was also an instructor at the Naval College, and he wanted to leave India as soon as possible and return to his duties. Oh. And he's like, I hate it here. I want to go home as soon as possible. I'm going to go against the advice of everybody and just do whatever I want, because I'm a royal person. The the millions of people here be damned. Yeah, exactly. I want to go back to the Navy. That's probably hundreds of millions at this point, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, hundreds of millions of people. Yeah. he's like... But the Navy. Mm. Yep. 
Uh, Mountbatten tried to persuade Jenna to stay in a united India, but Jenna was adamant that a separate Pakistan must be created. Okay. So this is what we're talking about, is the creation yeah. of Pakistan. Yeah, the se- yeah, yeah. Um, Separation of the area that is now known as Pakistan from... And Bangladesh. And Bangladesh yeah. from India. Yeah. Which, if listeners, if you know anything about geography or you have a world map close to you, guess what? Pakistan and Bangladesh, still separate countries. They became separate countries, and they are separate countries. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. Okay. Um, seeing Jinnah's intransigence on the issue, Indian leaders acquiesced to partition despite opposition from Gandhi. Like, Gandhi didn't want this. He wanted a united India. Uh-huh. Uh, the British government approved of the plan with the Indian Independence Act of 1947. They're just like, all right, fine, sure, whatever. Wow. I mean, they don't have any money to continue to spend there anyways, so it's in their best interest to pull out as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, Mountbatten, um, to kind of decide, you know, where the border should actually be. Because, like, there's no, there's no border. This has all oh been one, one unit of... He's like, I threw, I stood on this big mountain and threw a stone. And then we made that line. And then I stood down there and I threw a stone. No, it's going to be something stupid, isn't it? Maybe. Maybe oh, stupider boy. than that. Oh, um, God. Mountbatten appoints a man by the name of Cyril Radcliffe to head a boundary commission charged mainly with creating borders in the Bengal and Punjab regions, which I'll show you on this map here. Like, Bengal, and then Punjab is up here. Okay. Um, These are the areas which are kind of um, uh, the main issue here. Okay. Um, While both regions had... Muslim majority populations, they weren't, like, overwhelmingly Muslim. It's like, okay, that area is definitely Muslim. Okay, that area is definitely Hindu. These are, like, like 55, 45. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um... So, just majority Muslim, but not enough that... Yeah. Okay. Uh, Radcliffe, a little bit about Radcliffe, he'd been born in March 1899 in Wales. What am I gonna say next? British lawyer. Yes, he was educated as a lawyer in the UK. Yeah. Wow. You're going to guess that one. Yeah. Um, he worked for the Ministry of Information during World War II. That's a made-up place. That's in Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, possibly. Um, he'd been a college friend of Mountbatten. Of course. And he Cronyism was a, at his finest. He was appointed by Mountbatten to head the Boundary Commission. Okay. He had only five weeks to draw the borders. I know. It's like, what are what is this guy's qualifications to draw borders between countries? He's not a geographer. He's not a cartographer. No. He doesn't no. know anything about India. He's no. a lawyer. And he a never even he never been to India. He had never been east of France. This is stupid. This is like using a dousing rod to create the the, the borders of a country. Pretty much. Pretty much. Um, two separate commissions were created: one for Bengal, one for Punjab. Okay. Um, each commission had five members: uh, two each from Congress and League, and in addition to Radcliffe himself. Okay. So, um, the, the, these areas that they're trying to divide this line in between, are these areas heavily, like, are they heavily traveled? Do they have roads there? Or is this something where this dude's, like, trying to traipse through the wilderness and be like, this is Oh, he didn't actually go to these places. Oh. No. So he just drew it on a map? Yeah. This is so much dumber than the rock thing. This is so much dumber than the rock thing, because... Then at least, like, you could see natural boundaries. Uh, the Sikh community was not represented adequately. Wow. Yeah. Especially, Which, in, especially the, in Punjab, because I think that's, if I'm not mistaken, that's where, like, the Sikh holy sites are. I was going to say, that's yeah. a, I mean, it's not a majority, but it's a fairly large pro- yeah. percentage yeah. of people in India. Yeah, it's true. Um, wow. Radcliffe, as I mentioned, he'd never been to India. He was not familiar with the social dynamics. Uh, and, of course, the drawback of uh, these commissions, having two members each from the two opposing parties, guess what? They deadlock, leaving Great. basically Radcliffe to just make most decisions himself, whether or not this area should be in Pakistan, this area should be in India. Why didn't they? he just do it himself anyways? What's the even the point of a commission if you're going to be deadlocked all the time? I don't know. Uh, Radcliffe, basically, and then he, he just thought, no matter what he did, people would suffer. So he's just like, well, I'll just try to make the decision where the least amount of people are going to suffer. 
Or the most equal amount of people suffering on both sides. <laughs> yeah. Lord have mercy. Uh, Radcliffe finished his work only a few days before independence. Oh my gosh. The process was kept completely secret. So there's no like open hearings or anything like that. With not well, even, they couldn't. There, I mean, there yeah. would be no time. Yeah, with a, with not even Pakistan and India, the actual countries, knowing their border until a day after independence. Wow. So <laughs> yeah. they don't even have time to plan. Oh lord, they're no. just thrown there, into there's this. No planning involved in this. They're like, here are the irrevocable borders of your new countries, mm-hmm. and we're telling you this the day after we're out of here. We've washed our hands goodbye. Yeah. Jeez, man. So, on August 14th, 1947, the Dominion of Pakistan came into existence with George VI, the King of Britain. He was retained as king, so he's now also King of Pakistan. And Jinnah becoming the Governor General, who's like the king's representative in the country. The following day, on August 15th, the the Dominion of India gained independence with George VI, again, retained as king with Nehru becoming the Prime Minister and Mountbatten staying on as Governor General. Okay. Uh, Throughout the whole process, uh, Muslims, Hindus, and Sikhs were moving from areas where they would not be in control to areas where they would be. Okay. Um, For context, in 1947, the entire British Raj had approximately 390 million people. 330 in India... And 30 each in East and West Pakistan. Uh, East Pakistan is modern Bangladesh. West Pakistan is basically modern-day Pakistan. Okay. So there's 390 million people across this whole barrage. An estimated 14.5 million people moved between countries over the span of a few months. Wow. So Um, like 5% of the entire population of both countries moved. I'm going to show you some pictures here. Uh, That's a huge amount of people. Oh, that's Radcliffe. Typical British guy. Yeah. Um, Glasses, suit. You get the picture. Yeah, this is how it's kind of divided. The green is Muslim areas. Orange is... uh, Or green is like Pakistan. Orange is India. These gray areas are like the princely states. Uh The Britain doesn't actually control them, so they kind of give them the option to go their own way. But like when your whole country is surrounded by another country, you kind of have no choice but to join it. Right, exactly. So so like they all get taken care of, but... So here's Bengal, here's Punjab. See, they're kind of, like, divided yeah. down the middle. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah. Um, and that's a picture of just trains going to and from uh, places. The train themselves are packed. There's people covering the entire roofs of these trains just trying to get out of these areas where it's, like, these Hindus and Muslim-controlled areas... Or, or and what will be Pakistan and vice versa, mm-hmm. trying to get to the other country. Wow! Um, imagine having to uproot entirely. Oh yeah, there's whole families that, um, based off of the arbitrary decisions of one person yeah. or another. Yep. Um, all this led to violence and chaos that neither of the newly minted countries nor the British were able to control. Yeah, I mean, that, well, the British are on their way out. They're like yep. peace. Yep. You guys can deal with this all you want, and India's like, you guys just did this to us, and you didn't even tell us until the day after, Yeah, and now we just have to figure it out? Yeah. What? Average estimates hover around 1 million dead. Jeez. So of 15 million people displaced, about 1 in 15 of them died from Mm -hmm. this. From either violence or, I'm assuming, I mean, were there refugees at this point? Like... Yeah, I mean, uh, or... Also, these are two fairly new to independence countries. I mean, I'm sure that they're... Yeah, I mean, there are going to be British people there to, you know, help assist or whatever. Or at least they've been appointed as assistants to this. Yeah, how much assistance are they actually giving? Right. But these are two governments that are completely unprepared for the amount of people that are trans you know oh, yeah. going across this border and they're not prepared to assist them there's no resettlement councils oh, there's Lord, no yeah there's it's no like there's no social welfare here at this point yeah. i'm sure there's no like food welfare like no. it's just well we're all riding on these trains we're riding on the roof of these trains to try and figure literally this out. leaving everything behind and basically just taking what you can carry leaving with the clothes on your back because yeah. 
I mean, at a certain point, you want to avoid violence, mm-hmm. but you could also be running directly towards it. So, man, that's it's nuts. It's just nuts to think that there is no net, there is no safety net at all. Yeah. Uh, continued frictions between India and Pakistan centered on the northern princely state of Jammu and Kashmir, mm-hmm. which even to this day they still have tensions over. Mm-hmm. It's divided right down the middle between them. Um. Yeah. Um, India and Pakistan would fight in four wars over the next 50 years. Uh, East Pakistan would break away and become Bangladesh in 1971 because, again, kind of far away from the rest of Pakistan. Right, exactly. That's so, just, it, it was like a weird naming convention for the two yeah. to be on... They're literally on the furthest east point of India and the furthest west point of yeah. India, but they're both called Pakistan. It was bit literally just like, well, all the Muslim areas are Pakistan. It'd be like, be like Pennsylvania being East Indiana and Indiana being West Indiana. Or a perfect, or a perfect example, uh, um, the Western Reserve up in the northern part of Ohio uh-huh. was part of Connecticut. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Heck? Um, no so, sense. Yeah, uh, antagonism between the two countries led both to develop nuclear weapons. What? India in 1974 and Pakistan in 1998. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, so that's so rewinding a bit back. Um, Gandhi attempted to alleviate the violence with, through public speaking and undertook several hunger strikes. Right, right. I, I think that's probably what he's most known for is the yeah. hunger strike thing. But less about Congress and more about yeah, or more sure. just like just general like non cooperation, non violence, yeah. that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, while on his way to a prayer meeting, uh, Gandhi was assassinated on January thirtieth, nineteen forty eight, less than six months after independence by a Hindu nationalist. Okay. Yeah. Not a good look. No. Thing. Uh, Cyril Radcliffe returned to his work as a lawyer and was created a baron in nineteen forty nine and a viscount in nineteen sixty two. All made up. Yes. Before dying in April 1977. 1977. Oh my god, it's not that long ago. It's so not that long ago. Yeah. Uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, which I didn't actually show you a picture of him, did I? No. Um, that's Nehru. Okay. That's Jinnah. Okay. Yeah. Um, he was sick. Um, and you might be able to see it here a little bit. He kind of looks kind of gaunt. Yeah, I was thinking, like, his eyes are kind of sunken and, uh, yeah, and well, his he, cheekbones uh, Later are picture showing. of him, oh, it gets worse. Um, he kind of is, they have for cancer? lack of a better word, like, corpse-like. Oh, boy. Um, he had, uh, I think, I'm not saying he had tuberculosis. Mm, okay. um, but it was also one of those things where it's just like, he's just surviving out of spite. Like, I'm surviving just to get this through and to see this happen. Oh, boy. So he... Uh, he serves as the first Governor General of Pakistan until his death in September 1948, so just a little over a year Not later. Not even that long. Yeah. Okay. So he, he lives on to see an see independent Pakistan. Okay. Uh, Pakistan uh, became a republic in 1956, deposing Elizabeth II, so she's no longer Queen of Pakistan. Right. Severing its last links to Britain. Um, Jawaharlal Nehru continued as India's first Prime Minister until his death in May 1964. Wow. So he serves for quite a long a time. A long time. Yeah. Um, overseeing India's transformation to a republic in 1950, deposing George VI. So, sure. again, severing that last link to Britain. Okay. Which they, I'm sure at that point they were like, well, we don't really have any control over it anyways, so. Yeah. Um, Louis Mountbatten served as Governor General of India until June 1948, returning to the UK and the Royal Navy. Uh, he served as the first Sea Lord... That Which, sounds like something that um, I knew you were, I knew you were gonna like roll your eyes at that what's one. What's the thing? What's the guy's name who started Scientology? Uh, L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah, uh, that sounds like something he would appoint himself. <laughs> the Sea like, Org. I am the For... Grand Sea Lord of the Sea Org of the Church of Scientology. Yeah, something crazy like yeah. that. Yeah, um, I'm gonna start calling myself Sea Lord. <coughs> if, if we're talking about made up. <coughs> Do you need water? No, I'm fine. If we're talking about made-up names, Sea Lord's a pretty good one. Uh, the first Sea Lord is, it's like the operational head of the Royal Navy. It's kind of like, in this country, the chief of naval operations. Okay. Um, he served as in that role, again, as first Sea Lord from 1955 to 1959, and chief of the defense staff from 1959 to 1965. So he's the guy in charge of the military. Like wow. the, Like the actual 
member of the military who's in charge of it. Kind of like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Right, right. In this country. Obtaining the rank of Admiral of the Fleet. It's like a five-star admiral. So he he really rose up through the ranks. He's oh, like, yeah. I'm 13. I basically was born on this boat. Yep. And then he became the head honcho. Yeah. Before retiring in 1965, um, he was assassinated what? by the IRA while on his fishing boat in Ireland in August 1979. Did I okay. just spoil the crown for you? Because <laughs> Now you did? I no. didn't know that was going to happen. Well, you shouldn't have said anything about the crown. Oh. Well, you got to cut that out. You yeah. don't want anybody to get the crown spoiled for them. Even though it's been out for several years. Um. So, so he was assassinated, but he wasn't even. He, he so, so I guess he still had the status of being a distant member of the royal family. Oh yeah, I mean he's Prince Philip's uncle. So yeah. like, and he's well within the like you know he like he basically takes Prince Charles under his wing and mentors him oh. somewhat. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I remember. Okay, so the I haven't seen that far into the crown, but young Dickie is the one who tries to get him to go to uh, Exeter, not Exeter, something like that. If I remember, he correctly. wants to get him to go to the the yeah. close college, but then Prince Philip is like, no, no, he's going to this crazy Scottish college that I went to. That I is, had to build this terrible. wall. At. Yeah, yeah. Well, he didn't have to. He built a gate. Or gate. Well, what? And he didn't have to do that. He did it out because he was sad. I felt so bad for him. He's like, "Oh, you go. You're going to this private boarding school. They're probably getting a five star education. Well, like it, so many other people in your country. It did so look like it was kind of a fringe school. Number one and number two. Don't feel bad for Prince Philip because he was still a jerk to Charles. I'm being sarcastic. Okay, I know yeah. that you were being sarcastic, but Charles is terrible. I mean, Philip is terrible. They're all terrible. But anyways. It's just interesting that they would go after somebody who is not actually like a part of an uh, like an influential role at that point. He's been retired for a long time. Yeah, but he's still. It's seen because like he had an estate in Ireland, like actual, mm. like not Northern Ireland, like Ireland, Ireland. Okay. Um. So it was probably more within reach. Okay. As opposed to actually going over to the UK and trying to get a member of the royal family. Oh, here's this member of the royal family that comes here frequently. And he's out on his boat. Yeah, we can just... What they did, just pop a bomb onto it and... They blew it up? up. Yeah, they blew it up. That's how they killed him. I thought you just meant that they, like, shot him or something. No. They blew him up? Yeah. They blew up his fishing boat while he's out on it. I think... I think he was on it with a couple of grandkids, maybe. I don't remember. Offhand. I don't remember. Okay, well, that's intense. But yeah, uh, yeah, the IRA, they assassinate a member of the royal family. Can we do an episode on the IRA? Because I don't know anything about the Troubles. Um, I do have an episode. Well, well, inside baseball here. I do have an episode planned on the Irish potato famine at some point. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say something about baseball. (laughs) You never heard the term inside baseball? What? Basically, a a peek behind the scenes. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> never, I've never heard that Old before. Old <laughs> Like par for the course? <laughs> that one's more common than that. I've never heard that before. My yeah, life. I don't know. Yeah, anyway, it is a it is a thing. But, um, Irish, but what were you going to say about the Troubles? The Troubles, uh, it, they may come up at some point. Um, I know the Irish Potato Family will come up. I know that Irish War of Independence will come up. But... Um, the troubles. I don't know if they'll come up at some point. Okay. They may, but because I don't want to assume or exclude a topic completely sure. from future episodes. Because you never know. I might do one like a few years Just, down the road. But. Like I don't. I feel like we never. We almost never hear about the IRA. And considering it was not that long ago. I mean, fifty years ago. No, I don't mean the troubles only ended in the nineties. The Good Friday Agreement in 1997, I think. Don't even know what that is. That that's what ended the troubles. I so, yeah, I get that. So, so I just like mean within it. our lifetimes. I know. I'm just saying. Like I have never like people don't really talk about that at all. They're like, yeah, I I mean, Ireland can take care of itself. I mean, yeah. Former IRA members, I think, have been elected to Parliament. So a lot of people will just close a blind eye to anything that happens in Ireland for some reason. Yeah, it's really weird. Irish people, though, are also fiercely defensive of their country. Yeah. So, and and I think it's partly because they uh, they you know what you said. See, it's also weird because it's like there's such a large Irish popular Irish descended population in this country. 
Yeah. Especially in the north, especially in New England. But. I mean, rednecks are mostly Irish and Scottish, so. That's because they all went to Appalachia. Yeah. Hmm. Fertile land. And they're used to brambly, crappy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Downcast. Yeah. Grow in that area, they'd be the Irish. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. Sorry, so. sorry, we totally digressed there, but yeah, just um, interesting. I would like to, I would like to learn more about the IRA, and I think that um, we kind of owe it to people to outline that, considering it gets almost no discussion. Yeah, yeah, especially because it's like, I mean, yeah, it's not really relevant to American history too much. Sure, but. Especially the potato famine doesn't really get a lot of, but that is definitely relevant. It's well because it's why we have such a large Irish population. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, like the Irish potato famine is like directly is almost directly responsible for the amount of Irish people who lived here, and then all of the stuff that they went through in the early. The current population of Ireland still has not recovered to what it was before the potato famine. Yeah, like that's that's nuts. So. So that I feel like that's really important. But yeah, the potato famine. Will definitely be coming up on this episode because there's definitely one asshole you can pin it on, <laughs> or a lot of it you can pin it on. Wow. So, Jeez. yeah, so a little little preview for he brought bad potatoes. A future episode, not not within the next, you know, That's three, okay. four, five, but some point down the road. Okay. So, cool. Um, sources I use for this include Yasmin Khan's The Great Partition: The Making of India and Pakistan from 2007. Anthony Reed and David Fisher's The Proudest Day, India's Long Road to Independence from 1998. Jaswant Singh's Jinnah, India, Partition and Independence from 2009. Damodar Sordesai's India, The Definitive History from 2007. Ian Talbot and Gurha Paul Singh's The Partition of India from 2009. Uh, The Great Big Book of Horrible Things by Matthew White from 2015. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Shameful Flight, The Last Years of the British Empire in India. From 2006 uh, by Stanley Wolpert and Philip Ziegler's Mountbatten, the official biography from 1985. Okay. So. So essentially a recurring theme in both near and far history is white people coming in and drawing arbitrary borders where there weren't any before is not the way to unite (laughs) nor assist a country in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Without consulting anybody who knows anything about it. Right, exactly. I mean, see India, see Africa, see Eastern Europe, see the Balkans. <laughs> so, see Israel. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, it's just like, all over the globe, it's like you just see all these arbitrary borders just... Side note, if uh, if you've never seen Eddie Izzard's comedy special called Dress to Kill from, I think it's like 2000, 2001, please go watch it. She's hilarious. Uh, she goes on about arbit- British people going on and arbitrarily uh, drawing borders where there weren't any for people who had lived there for millennia. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's it's great. Dress to Kill is great. It's a tiny history lesson. Yeah. She's a history buff and also funny, maybe also on cocaine, but... Also great on Hannibal, which was unexpected. Yes. <laughs> that is or it is. She's yeah. phenomenal, so... Um, yeah, so uh, tell us a little bit about what's going to happen next time. We're going to talk about why you really, really, really should never piss off Genghis Khan. <laughs> oh, yay. I don't know anything about Genghis Khan except for maybe he has, like, a lot of descendants. That's, it's dubious, because there's not really a great dubious. way to prove it. But So we're back to doom and gloom. Doom and gloom, uh, yeah, a lot of, lot of, lot of deaths. Boy, a lot of needless deaths. Here we go. So, all right. So, uh, please don't forget to check out our sister projects, or mostly my sister projects, uh, the YouTube show, The Drunken Pond, which is produced by myself and hosted by our co-producer Steve on this podcast, um, where we drink beer and play board games. It's a great time. Uh, Attack of the Final Girls, which is a horror review podcast, uh, which is co-hosted by myself and my lovely pod wife, Juliet. Uh, Three Minute Movies, which is a YouTube channel where I attempt to summarize and spoil movies in three minutes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our show so we can stay on the charts. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram at WeEft Up. I'm Teresa. And I'm Cody. And this is WeEft Up. Up.